Last week we began the second chapter of the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. The first ten verses here record Hannah's magnificent prayer of praise. And this prayer, as we recognize, is quite a contrast to her prayer in the first chapter, in which she was deeply distressed, weeping bitterly, pouring out her soul before the Lord, and speaking out of her great anxiety. In her first prayer, crying out to the Lord, she had made a vow to give the son she asked God for back to the Lord to serve God as his priest as long as this son lived. Now in her prayer, praise God has given her the son, and she has faithfully and gladly, we must note, kept her vow. She has delivered him to Eli the priest at Shiloh. Hannah's prayer in chapter 2 can be divided into three sections, which are like three big windows into her soul, into her heart. And each one helps us understand how well that she knew God and how well she loved him and how well she was committed to his purposes. First, Hannah begins with her own remarkable experience in verses 1 through 3, which we covered last week. This week, we'll look at the second and third sections. In the second section, she sees that the way God delivered her is characteristic of the way that he rules his world. And that's in verses 4 through 8. And thirdly, she ends up by recognizing what it will be like then when God is fully, completely, and visibly ruling when Christ returns. And that's in verses 9 and 10. What we're really finding out mostly about Hannah is what she is most deeply thankful for. That she really knows God and has been accepted into his steadfast care. Her first prayer in chapter 1 came from a heart that desired most of all to see her Lord magnified in the world that she lived in. In a world which, remember, was saturated, literally saturated with idolatry and rebellion and people doing whatever they wanted to do. And this was Israel. Yes, she wanted a son. And to be rid of the derision of being mocked for being childless. But underneath all that was a heart that wanted a son whom she could gladly give back to God for a lifelong faithful service to the Lord God Almighty. A son that God may use to bring worship and praise back to the only one deserving of that worship and praise. That's what's underneath everything. 
In other words, her chapter 1 prayer came out of the great desire of her heart to see God glorified in and through it all, no matter what ended up happening, which is why she took a vow to give the son that she asked for back to God for lifelong service to him. This is what tells us where her heart really was. Yes, she wanted a child badly, but she wanted God to be glorified more. That's the point. If you're able, would you please stand as I read her prayer, which many call also a song? Don't worry. Going to read it as a prayer. 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Maybe seat it. So now in the rest of her magnificent prayer, praise here in chapter 2, we see in the second section how Hannah understands that the way God has dealt with her is characteristic of the way that he rules the world. You should be asking, well, what difference does that make? Or maybe we should say, you should know. That makes all the difference. And then in the third and last section, she expands that thinking. to include what it's going to be like when God fully and completely and visibly rules. 
Now, my first reaction to this song and prayer and seeing how this flows is simply, I wish I wouldn't get distracted in between each verse and each word. I ask God to let my thinking go this direction because where she starts and where she ends up is where God wants us to start and end up. It's what he's working in us. It's the sanctification that we just prayed for and thank God that he is working in all of us. So the second section here is the way God has dealt with her is characteristic of the way he rules the world in verses 4 through 8. As Hannah considers what has happened to her, especially as she conveyed it in the first section, in the first three verses, she realizes more of God's tendencies in ruling his world. Isn't that what we want? We're always constantly asking, why did this happen? What's this for? What's the reason for this? And these are the thoughts that we need to direct to help us understand those questions. The answers will not be complete in this life, but this is how we're to train our minds and our hearts to to think. In other words, God's tendencies in ruling here have a connection, more of a connection, because they reflect his character. And we go off that track almost immediately. Something happens, we don't get it, we know God is ruling. So we immediately think God is not good. God is not faithful. God is not consistent. God doesn't really care about me. On and on and on and on we go. Instead, the warning flag should be hitting full spread here. Hitting us in the face as we realize I don't understand God's character. I don't really know him like I should because I am reacting this way. Or if we do realize it, we should be saying, God, I'm questioning your character because I know you say you are this. That's what the scripture says, and yet I am reacting this other way. Oh, I confess that as sin. I repent of that. Direct me with your thoughts and your word. That does a couple of things. It makes us dive back into Scripture to think. We pray it. We think it. And it helps us settle down and realize that he is ruling and that there's a lot more here that we don't understand. The end result is what? Humility. He is God. I'm not. The demonstration of his majesty and his power and superintending his creation, isn't that a neat way to describe it? Are all motivated by and done in his holiness and purity and goodness and faithfulness to his people. Let me say that again because we don't hear that very much. 
we don't hear it hardly at all anywhere else but from the Word of God in our day. The demonstration of God's majesty and power in superintending His creation are all motivated by and done in His holiness and purity and goodness and faithfulness to His people. Immediately, what are we thinking? We hear screams. Why did God allow this? Why did God allow that? Why is He doing this? Why is He letting this run the course? There are very good answers to those questions. And they all revolve around man's sinful rebellion to the holy God who created us for him. And those aren't soundbite answers to these questions. You can't just give soundbites to answer the big questions. Hannah marvels here in verses 4 through 8 at the Lord's majesty and power, which she now better recognizes. Why does she now better recognize it? Yeah, I need to face this. So do you. Since God supplied exactly what she needed in her affliction. But she also knows that God allowed and used her affliction to actually drive her to do exactly the right thing, which was to cry out to her Lord, in her need. And both of those things go together. Why does God so often work this way? We see it all through Scripture. And we also see it all through our life experiences. God works this way because our default setting is naturally to rely on ourselves, to think we have the means and the power and the wit to save others, to figure everything out, or think we do, and to rule and control and to try to manipulate people and circumstances. That's why God works this way. Each of God's people has to learn, usually over and over again, that there is none holy like the Lord. Can you hear her singing and praying this? There is none besides Him. There is no rock like our God. So the Lord does whatever he needs to do. To continue to demonstrate to us and the rest of his creation. That's important. That he is who he claims to be in the Holy Scriptures. That he alone is the Lord God Almighty. Lip service does not please him. He is so powerfully majestic and sovereign that he accomplishes his intended redemptive purposes no matter what else occurs. Because there is not one... Never will forget the first time I heard this. There is not one autonomous molecule or being 
in his universe that operates outside of or above answering to him. There's a little bitty book that I literally saw people almost have a heart attack when they, when they read the, the title and the little description under it. It's called The Serpent of Paradise. And the theme of the book was even the devil is God's devil. Not meaning that he's an instrument of the Lord God Almighty on purpose, but meaning what? That even he is under the superintending authority of God Almighty. The best example in the Bible is perhaps Job or Christ's life. Because it was man's sin and the devil's work in the world that took Christ to the cross. And God superintended that whole thing, but it was him that was what? Providing an atoning sacrifice for you and me. Yeah, that's hard to explain. But this is not Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker time. It's a completely different idea. It's not yin-yang. God is sovereign ruler of the universe. He created it. And he will accomplish all of his purposes in redemption through it all. Now, instead of making us question and wither before the attacks of the world about everything that's going on and how horrible it is and it's out of control, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, not to mention our own lives sometimes, what we need, that, that should not diminish our understanding of how God works in the world. It should increase it. Because who else but the almighty Lord God could work all that to accomplish his glory? And at the same time, allow people to demonstrate their rebellion and their sin, which will also bring God glory at the end because we, our sin will be shown to be wrong and rebellious and what it is. And only his holiness and righteousness will prevail. This is how Hannah expresses it. What a lesson. While the consequences of sin may and obviously do grow and horrify us, his redemptive purposes are not thwarted. Why else would any Christian answer the call of God on their life to go into the most horrid places on the face of the earth to proclaim the gospel as they live amongst dark, dark souls? Because they know that God is real. This is what Hannah now says in her prayer here in chapter 2, in the form of, 
seven powerful contrasts here in verses 1 down through 7, and then she kind of sums it up a little bit or explains it in a little one of them in verse 8. Let me read this faster than I did before. The bowels of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, which means many or fullness. But she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and exalts. We see these contrasts here, the strong and the weak, the full and the hungry, the barren and the fertile, the dead and the alive, the sick and the well, the poor and the rich, the humble and the exalted. The bottom line, what is she saying? No one can stand against the Lord. He can turn the tables on anybody or for anybody. At any time he desires and when it pleases him to do so, and whatever he does grows out of, comes from him, his character, his righteousness, his holiness, his mercy, his love, his grace, his faithfulness. Do we know him? Do we know him well enough to trust him that much? Not only that, but there is something else of vital importance to to see here that greatly nurtures our hope. Good verse 8. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. For those of you who got to hear uh, John and Victoria share, do you remember he was saying the, uh, that there, there's a large contingent of believers who are working where he is from India? Do you remember what group Culturally, economically, and socially, most all of those believers were a part of. The absolute lowest caste in that culture. The people who were derided and looked down upon and thought of as dogs and trash. Garbage to be used for whatever purpose, throwaways. Now, if you read those things again, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. 
Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren is born seven, but she has many children. Is forlorn. The kills the Lord kills and bring to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and He makes rich. He brings low and exalts. Who's the rich people from God's point of view and for eternal perspective of those believers? not the rich and the mighty it's the poor in this situation who God has worked in and changed their hearts and given life eternal and this that kind of thing is what Hannah sees it's it's like from her experience she goes this is how God rules his world he does the unexpected instead of just proclaiming Christ to the rich and famous at this university, he goes to the poor that are barely making it. Or the person cast aside socially, or this group, or that group, because those people are what? More willing, maybe? To hear God's truth and his answer? Instead of arrogant and proud, I've already made it, I've already got it just another thing to occupy time Dale Ralph Davis explains it this way puts another little twist on it that is so important for us to hear the saving help God gave Hannah was but a foretaste a scale model demonstration of how the Lord will do it when he does it in grand style. Would you agree with that? In other words, each one of Christ's flock should ingest this point into his or her thinking. Every time God lifts you out of the miry bog... You can tell that person that, that wrote this was not from here, except maybe the last couple of months. You ever seen a miry bog? Anyway. Set your feet upon a rock, after lifting us out of that, is a sample of the coming of the kingdom of God. A down payment of the full deliverance, the consummation of all things when he returns. Is that what Hannah is praying and saying? Yes. She recognized what God did as just a little picture, a little foretaste, something she can hold on to and go, that's what God's going to do when he returns, except it's going to be across the board. You should not despise or demean these little salvations. Quote. That the Lord works in your behalf. These little clues that he gives. These clear but small evidences he leaves us that he is king. And that he has this strange way of raising up the poor from the dust 
and lifting the needy from the ash heap to make them sit in the heavenly realms with Jesus Christ. Ponder every episode of the Lord's saving help to you. It will help you believe what he says. Jesus said in Luke 12, 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Hey, we just read right over that because, you know, life's really pretty good even with all the stuff going on. If you don't watch TV, it's really great. Amarillo's a friendly town. People do weird things, try to eat pounds of flesh and win a prize. You know, they come in, Steak City, U.S. I mean, we do weird things. Everything's just kind of fun. You know, there's things going on social get-togethers, community demonstrations. I think there was something going on last night. You know, I mean, it's just all the time. Isn't it wonderful? It's wonderful. It is wonderful. But how many of you married people can look back at the first couple of years of your marriage and go, man, I remember when our washing machine went out and we were going, we're dirty people. We need, we need to be able to wash our clothes. And God provided somehow. And, and it's not just one thing. It's a whole bunch of little things like that. And why do you remember them? Because you were in such need that when something happened that you now recognize or hopefully then recognize was God's provision and faithfulness to you in some crisis or something other, and you actually made it through it? Don't you remember those things? Yes, you remember them. Uh, well, maybe most of them. And, and the point is what? Those are little demonstrations now in this sinful world that we live in that God is going to make all things right in the end and that he will come back in power and that he will rule and that everything will be judged, every secret, dirty thing that's happened. Gone. Things will be made right. So much so that the scripture says that what's going on now is just, you know, for the moment. Do, do those kind of things in your life that go on year after year after year, some situation, some physical malady, some relationship, does that seem like small momentary affliction? No, it doesn't now. But it, what he's saying is it will be viewed that way when he makes all things right. God worked in Hannah's heart to make her recognize these truths. And, and you know, when you look at it, it's pretty soon after it happened. There are examples of this forever, but let's pick a big one. John Calvin. Who else in his 30s had already written more volumes than most people can read in their lifetime? On theology and pastoral concerns. John Calvin wrote to a friend after his wife's death, and John Calvin died young, saying that he would surely have been crushed. But he knew a Lord who raises up the prostrate, strengthens the weak, and refreshes the weary, and that the Lord had again in his life 
acted according to his holy character in Calvin's grief. That is the key. He knew that God had acted according to his holy character, even if he didn't understand it all. But he could be okay with not understanding it all because he knew God's holy character. He could trust him. And this is essentially what Hannah is saying or praying here. That she was ready to fall, and yet the Lord gave her strength. Even answering her prayer for a child that she hoped God would use to stand up in the gap in a decadent Israel. Do we pray that for our kids? And through Hannah's first prayer in chapter 1, we've seen now that God has brought forth a boy who would actually grow to be a shield for his whole people. Hannah ends her prayer here in chapter 2 by declaring what it's going to be like when God fully and completely and visibly rules. So this is not divided up like we're making an outline, so we're dividing up. But I hope you see the flow of just how our, how our thinking is going and how our prayer is laid out before the God that she knows. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. You know, as we grow in seeing God's redemptive saving work in our lives, and as we learn to recognize the value of these little salvations and the evidences that he leaves, that he is king, do we then end up here where Hannah is, recognizing that God mercifully and lovingly provides numerous foretastes of the reality that we will see when he wraps it all up in his return? You parents with young kids, praise God, or you're hoping to have kids sometime, or if you have nieces and nephews, or whatever situation you're in, when God does something like this, keep a record of it somewhere to pass down to them. Look what God did when you were little. He did this, he answered this, he answered this. Now, when they're little, they're not going to get the big picture. When they're older, they'll understand. Wow, I didn't know we never had anything. The beauty of innocence in that regard. It's a blessing. Why? Because you are living out the fact that you trust a faithful God. And you're passing that on. At least they'll know that. First, there's a whole bunch of God wills in here. God will, God will, God will. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. This means that God will deliver his covenant people. You know why? Because faithful ones is the Old Testament word that's mostly translated in the older versions as saints. 
It's godly ones. It refers specifically to those whom the Lord has pledged his covenant love. Does that help? Interestingly, this is a closely related word to the Hebrew word chesed. The special word that's always translated in the ESV as steadfast love. The steadfast of the Lord is, I mean, it's everywhere. Um, Other translations use loving kindness or unfailing love. But one of the cool things about the ESV is that every time that word appears, it's translated as steadfast love. Lamentations 3, the whole Bible. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder from heaven. What do you think about that verse? This first phrase here, not the first phrase, but for not by might shall a man prevail. That is the primary lesson to be learned from both 1st and 2nd Samuel, which, as we mentioned last week or the week before, it, it was originally one big book. That's the primary lesson, for not by might shall a man prevail. How would you end it? But by the Lord. Okay, that's the lesson. And when you think about all the stuff we're getting ready to get dive into in 1 Samuel, not to mention 2 Samuel, you can see that is the lesson that God teaches over and over and over and over again. And the point here is that God will completely and utterly shatter his opponents. So we've seen God will deliver his covenant people. And God will completely and utterly shatter his opponents. May not look like it now, but that's what's coming. Thirdly, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Do we need to say any more? God will judge everyone. And that is a terrifying thought. Only by God's son's blood covering us who's already paid for the condemnation of our sin in dying on the cross. Are we spared? But nobody else is going to be spared. Nobody. No matter how proud, no matter how powerful, no matter how beautiful, no matter how popular they are now, they will not be spared. So everything that's happening to them, this is all there's going to be for them, what's here on this earth. That's it. Then it's forever without Fourth, he will give strength to his king. God will give strength to a king to rule on his behalf in true faith. Who is that? First Samuel. Samuel is the interim judge and priest who God uses to do what? Initiate the period of the kings. Which king in this book rises up to be the special type of the coming Messiah himself? In his rule. Who is it? It's David. And we're going, how does she know this? 
And I'm going, I don't know, but it's right on the mark. It's Holy Scripture. She prayed it. Wow. But that's just a precursor because not only does she mention God's earthly ruler to rule on the Lord's behalf on the earth that's just down the road that Samuel will know and have a huge impact in the man's life. And lastly, God will exalt the horn of his anointed. God will exalt, finally and forever, Jesus the Messiah. Messiah means what? Anointed. And yeah, they anointed kings with oil. This is not just talking about all the kings. It's it's a collective pointing to the Messiah who is coming. As when he returns to rule in his glory forever and ever. You know, this is the first direct reference. Hear me? Direct reference to the promised Messiah in the Old Testament. First one. The word is used. It points beyond the human ruler right above it to the one he comes before to point to. Your response should be, this is cool. This is beyond great. You know, all you can really say here is hallelujah and amen. Let me just ask a couple of questions that I found (coughs) that are kind of these life questions to apply from this. Bible stories of barren women given children by God encourage us in our impossible situations. Consider the relevance of this to you at this stage of your life with God. However, God chooses to work it out. Because this is not a template for, if I do this, then God will do this. Okay? Second, am I ever in danger of substituting human gimmicks for dependence on the God of the impossible? Think, no, not me. I'm sure Sarah and Abraham said that too. See, the Bible is so real. It's so transparent in showing us our own evil hearts and tendencies and God's at the same time. We don't have to look very far to see, ooh, ooh, oh. Thirdly, our despair may be another prelude to a mighty work of God. Have we seen that already? Yes. What other places in scripture or experience have you seen this? You can make a whole list for the scripture ones. And in your experience, you will notice them now if you know the biblical ones. Despair is often a prelude to some really mighty, powerful work that that God may want you to be a part of, either just amongst you and your family or broader. It could be anything. He uses us all in different ways. But is this characteristic of how God works in his world that he does rule? Yes, it is. Fourth, what are some things about Hannah's prayer that you can be encouraged by in your own? 
let's say that different. What can you be encouraged by in both of Hannah's prayers that you can be encouraged in your own? Because, you know, this one, the first one was crying out to God like not many of us have, have done to that degree, but many of us have. To this one. They're all over the place. Mary. Joe read a couple from Exodus. Right after the deliverance across the Red Sea. And you know what? Things weren't hunky-dory after they got across. They griped. They complained. And I wouldn't call that one a little one. <clears throat> that was kind of a big demonstration of salvation. But we've got our experiences. We can look at it the same way. And lastly, which is your greatest concern for your children, your grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews? Is it fame, prosperity, even happiness? Or is it godliness? Let me close in prayer, and then Trish is going to come. She made it <clears throat> because God rules, and this is what he wanted. And she's going to close with a song about God's faithfulness. Let's pray. Oh, God, we thank you for how great and majestic you are, the creator of the universe. Just those thoughts send us to our knees. Our hearts are bowed before you. Thank you for doing the impossible with us that we could never do through your son who came to live the perfect life demanded of us so that he could die and pay for our sin on the cross, taking your full condemnation upon it. Oh, Lord God Almighty, we thank you for putting us in Christ, in your church, in his body, to live forever and ever as we melt and, and at the same time joyously celebrate your character, how great you are, your glory, your plan. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.